Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. Today, from London, I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. American voters are increasingly revealing their concerns for the welfare of livestock animals. But efforts to change the law in some states are coming up against all kinds of resistance, facing arguments ranging from the industrial to the constitutional. And science fiction is often thought of as a futuristic art, but often it plums the past for its settings and its hierarchies. We take a look at the newest installment of the Predator franchise and find a historical setting for a very current kind of hero. But first... A years-long prosecution has come to an end, and a former Malaysian prime minister is going to jail. Outside the country's highest court, Najib Razak said he'd tried with all that he could, but that his appeal had been rejected. Mr. Najib was actually convicted in 2020 on a string of corruption charges relating to the massive 1MDB scandal, in which billions of dollars from a sovereign wealth fund just went missing. The hunt for it crossed international borders. It implicated all manner of banks and power brokers, including then-Prime Minister Mr. Najib. Now he's run out of road, and he's going down swinging saying he didn't get justice or a fair trial. Mr. Najib was and is a powerful force in Malaysia's politics. The party he led might have been stained by the scandal, but it's still in power, and he has plenty of supporters. It all looks like a long-delayed win for the rule of law, but it might not be the last that Malaysians hear of Mr. Najib. On Tuesday, August 23rd, Malaysia's highest court made a dramatic ruling. It didn't so much as change anything as uphold a previous guilty verdict, one against somebody who for years had been thought untouchable. Leo Marani is our Asia editor. The former prime minister has been sent to prison for 12 years, starting immediately. He must also pay a $47 million fine. And he's been ejected from Parliament and prohibited from running again for quite a substantial period of time. And so what is it that he had been convicted of? So Najib Razak was Prime Minister of Malaysia from 2009 to 2018. From 2009 to 2015, about $4.5 billion went missing from Malaysian public money. Now, just to put that in context, that's more than the annual revenue of about half the world's governments. Where did that money go? Well, some of it was spent on artwork or a super yacht 
or diamond jewelry, handbags, various things. Uh, some of it even funded the making of a film about financial fraud. You've probably seen it. It's called The Wolf of Wall Street with Leonardo DiCaprio. But some 700 million of it passed through a personal account of Mr. Najib's. And so that money passing through Mr. Najib's hands is the basis of the conviction? Not quite. This is a powerful former prime minister prosecutors were dealing with. And also this is a country where judicial independence can't always be taken for granted. So instead, they set their sights lower and accused him of laundering just 42 billion ringgit, which is about 9 million US dollars, in two accounts in 2014 and 15. In the meanwhile, six different countries, including the US with its Department of Justice, have been chasing this up, trying to recover the stolen funds. There have been penalties here and there. Goldman Sachs has paid 3.9 billion for its role. And there still remain plenty of other cases that are being brought against Mr. Najib. You say that he's been appealing this since 2020. What's what's his defense? Well, he says that he believed all the money in his account was actually a gift from the Saudi royal family. Accepting gifts as a head of government is not a crime under Malaysian law, nor is failing to declare such gifts. However, last year, an appeals court heard this argument and it called it a concoction that is completely bereft of any credibility. It went on that Mr. Najib displayed, and I quote, willful blindness as to the origins of the money and was using it for his personal benefit and political purposes. So there is a a political angle to this as well. Yes, absolutely. Mr. Najib used to be prime minister for nearly a decade. He remains influential within his party, the United Malays National Organization, UMNO, which has itself run Malaysia nearly uninterrupted since independence in 1957. In fact, the first time it lost power was because of this whole thing. So what's been going on in the background as these appeals have been chugging along is that Mr. Najib and his faction in the party have been pushing for early elections. The idea being that if elections were called and a faction close to Najib was to win, it might be favourable in certain ways. Maybe a new attorney general could be appointed. Maybe the trial could have been delayed. Maybe a pardon could have been obtained in some fashion or the other. So there's been turmoil in the background as a result of all of this. So what's been the current government's role in all of that political wrangling? So the current government is also led by UMNO, however, with a prime minister from a different faction of it. This prime minister, Ismail Sabri Yaakob, he supposedly came under pressure to intervene, but he sat back and let events unfold. It is possible that he decided it was important not to mess with the judiciary and the judicial process. It is also possible he was happy to see the fall of a political rival. In any case, the result is the same, which is that it's a great victory for the judicial process in Malaysia. It's a really big deal for any country to send an ex-head of government to prison for corruption. So is this at last the end of the story for Mr. Najib? Well, he has one hope left, which is to obtain a pardon from the king, Sultan Abdullah. The two are from the same state. Supposedly, they're on good terms. However, that would be... uh, Tremendous repudiation, not just of this verdict, but also of the millions of people who voted to boot out Mr. Najib in elections in 2018, of the hundreds of thousands who came out in protest in 2015 when this whole scandal was revealed. So it's impossible to prognosticate, but this much is certain. Mr. Najib Razak is a very resourceful man. He's an ambitious man. He's a powerful man. He may have gone to prison. He may have several more cases pending against him. And this ruling may have been an extremely good sign for Malaysia. But you can never rule the man out. Leo, thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure, Jason. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I can tell you from very personal experience that Americans love meat. They eat more of it than the citizens of almost any other country. Cheap ribs and steaks and bacon are taken as a national birthright. But there's a growing dissonance going on. Americans are increasingly starting to think about the rights of the creatures that all that meat comes from. So the question of how livestock animals are treated before they end up on our dinner plates is something that more and more Americans are becoming uncomfortable with. Lizzie Peet is a researcher for The Economist and is based in New York. Many people are now pushing for greater protections for these animals, but while unease over their cramped conditions is increasing, a legal row currently underway in Massachusetts is showing how difficult it is to actually reform these conditions. So tell me about this legal difficulty. Well, it all started with a ballot initiative. So six years ago in 2016, voters in Massachusetts overwhelmingly backed a ballot initiative to overhaul farm animal welfare standards. Basically, it was called the Massachusetts Minimum Size Requirements for Farm Animal Containment, which is a bit of a mouthful. So most people referred to it as Question 3. And what Question 3 did was it banned the cruel confinement of chickens, pigs and calves, which it defined as any kind of housing that prevents the animal from lying down, standing up, fully extending their limbs or turning around freely. This passed pretty easily with 77% of support. So it's obviously a very popular measure. And this month, the regulations were finally due to all come into effect. But a last-minute delay has derailed it, possibly indefinitely. So what kind of problems did it run into? Well, ever since the ballot initiative passed six years ago, the lobbying litigation and amendments around it has been pretty intense. It's all become quite messy. Basically, and probably not surprisingly, the initiative has some quite powerful enemies from big agricultural industry that are looking to weaken it or stop it entirely. For example, last December, under some pressure from egg producers and amid general concerns that there would be issues with the egg supply, the Massachusetts governor, Charlie Baker, signed a bill which changed the regulations for chickens. And what this did was two things. First of all, it expanded the scope to cover other forms of egg products, like liquid eggs or powdered eggs, which restaurants often buy. But it also diluted the space requirement for chickens to one square foot from 1.5 square feet. And it also enabled egg producers to crowd 50% more hens into egg factories than the current law would allow. But while the situation is looking a little more complicated for chickens, it's looking even worse for pigs. In what way? Um, So basically, these rule changes were also set to ban the sale of pork products within Massachusetts from pigs which were confined in a cruel manner, which meant they couldn't turn around. This would effectively ban the use of gestation crates, which is something that the European Union banned in 2013. But last December, in that same bill where the governor kind of tweaked the egg rules, He announced an eight-month delay until August, ostensibly to stave off potential pork supply shortages. Delayed until August, till around now. Is that to say that these rules will finally come in? Well, no, at least not yet. And that's because there's been further problems that this law has run into. So in the eight months since these regulations were first delayed, the US Supreme Court has taken up a challenge to a similar law in California, which is called Proposition 12. That challenge is being led by the National Pork Producers Council, which is a very powerful lobby group called the NPPC. 
And they're doing so on the grounds that these Massachusetts and California space requirements apply not just to in-state pork production, but the sale of pork from other states as well. So the NPPC is arguing that Proposition 12 basically violates the Dormant Commerce Clause by excessively restricting interstate commerce. In other words, they're saying that voters in California are unfairly imposing pig welfare restrictions on other states, hindering billions of dollars worth of trade. And so this kerfuffle in California has an influence on what Massachusetts is trying to do. Exactly. And that's basically because these two laws are nearly identical. So on August the 11th, a district judge in Massachusetts agreed with a coalition of restaurant associations and the NPPC to delay the imposition of question three until 30 days after the Supreme Court decides on that California case. And they said they were doing this basically in order to conserve scarce judicial and public resources. But it's created this legal mess and no one quite knows what's going on now. I spoke to Bradley Miller of the Humane Farming Association, who called this constant delay and tweaking to the law deeply troubling, particularly after such strong support was shown for the rules in 2016. But others are obviously very happy with this delay. Terry Walters, who is the president of the MPPC, hailed it as a victory for pork farmers, giving them their right to raise their pigs as they wish and keep a reliable supply of pork running to consumers in America. But this is now a mess that's making its way to the Supreme Court. I mean, what do you think about the ultimate fate of these propositions and questions? Do you think these laws will come into effect? Well, no one really knows. It's always pretty dangerous to second guess what the Supreme Court is going to say. But it certainly is a risk. And there is definitely a convincing argument that by regulating not just domestic farm conditions within their states, but also imposing these on sales from other states, that both Proposition 12 and Question 3 have crossed some constitutional line. The impact would, of course, be very disproportionate on pig-producing states. So the other irony of this all is that California and Massachusetts don't really have that many pig farms at all. Iowa, for example, which is the nation's leading pork producer, holds 200 times the number of pigs that both of these states have combined. So obviously the law would affect certain states a lot more than it would others. That said, though, the lower courts in California and the US Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit have upheld this law in previous challenges on the grounds of precedent. So I guess we'll have to wait and see what the Supreme Court says. They're going to start considering this case in October. But it seems in the meantime to have become a, a question about law and much less directly about the, the animal welfare that, that sort of drove that overwhelming vote. Well, exactly. The courts, of course, seem very confused. And this has all become a very messy legal tangle. But the view of the public is becoming clearer and clearer. A significant number of voters are clearly uncomfortable with the idea of pigs unable to move around or chickens squeezed tightly together in small cages. So in a poll conducted in 2019, which was probably the first of its kind, a majority of respondents nationwide said they supported greater oversight of industrial animal farms, and a plurality of 43% favoured a ban on the creation of new concentrated animal feeding operations, which are these slightly notorious farms where the animals have no space to turn around. And I also spoke to someone at Compassion in Wild Farming, which is the lobby group, who said that the future is clearly going to be cage-free for animals just on the basis of consumer sentiment alone, and that it makes sense for big businesses to start really pushing through these reforms for consumers. Despite all this, though, only eight states have banned the use of gestation crates, if you don't count Massachusetts, whose law has now been delayed, which covers just 3% of the national pig population. So, in other words, 97% of America's pigs are living in states with no bans on gestation crates, which is pretty extraordinary, considering how strong consumer sentiment seems to be against them. So while it's clear that people don't like the idea of 
the meat they eat coming from animals who have been locked up in cages, not being able to move or stand up their whole life. The question of how to solve that problem democratically and constitutionally is proving a frustratingly difficult task. Lizzie, thanks very much for your time. Thanks very much, Jason. Why do you want to hunt? Because you all think that I can't. I saw a sign in the sky. I'm ready. The new Dan Trachtenberg film, Prey, is a prequel to the 1980s Predator film starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. John Bleasdale writes about film for The Economist. Unlike the original Predator and its sequels, Prey takes place far back in the past, in the 18th century, on the Great Plains of America. You're bleeding, man. I ain't got time to bleed. (laughs) Deep in the jungle, where nothing that lives is safe. The original Predator featured a group of Special Forces soldiers deep in the jungles of Central America on a secret mission when they come into contact with an alien hunter who is invisible and has much higher tech than they have and begins to take them out one by one. Whatever it is out there, killed Harper. And now it wants us. In the prequel, Prey, the Predator is revealed to be an alien species which has been hunting human beings for centuries. In this case, deep into the 18th century. So are we to expect then Arnold Schwarzenegger in, in 18th century garb? No, Arnold Schwarzenegger hasn't returned for any of the sequels or any of the franchises. And really the hero of Prey couldn't be further from the muscle-bound 80s pinup that is Mr. Schwarzenegger, the former governor of California. Naru is a teenaged Comanche who lives with her tribe in a sort of idyllic forest setting and where she is breaking gender stereotypes by wanting to compete with her brother and become one of the tribe's hunters. However, soon she's the one being hunted after a strange spaceship arrives in the sky, trailing thunderclouds and lightning as it lands. The way the film shifts the subtext politically is fascinating. The original 1980s Predator was all about American intervention in the third world. And really what the alien was doing to the Americans was partly what America was doing to the third world. Here instead, the alien takes on more of an aspect of a a colonial force, destroying the native habitat, destroying the animals and the fauna for no real reason. And in this sense, Naru, instead of being someone who in some ways is a survivor but is part of the problem, she's actually someone who is a survivor who's fighting a broader political fight for her tribe's survival and identity. So beyond the, the political shift here, there's the sort of temporal one. It's, it's interesting that this should be set in, in the past. That's unusual for sci-fi, isn't it? It's normally so future-looking. Yeah, you would think so, wouldn't you? But no, it's actually quite a common feature of science fiction. Think of the most popular entry in movie science fiction, at least, George Lucas's Star Wars. Which is set in a galaxy far, far away, but also a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Luke Skywalker and Han Solo rescued the princess, destroyed the Death Star, but their story didn't end there. The film is 
full of princesses and sword fights, Jedi knights coming from the past. And Obi-Wan Kenobi has a name like a Japanese samurai. And it's far from alone. The Emperor asks us to bring peace to Arrakis. House Atreides accepts. The recent screen adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune <laughs> relied heavily on a sort of medieval setting with houses of nobles fighting for the power to trade in spice. Now that Prey has shown that going back to the past is a way of rejuvenating a bit of a moribund franchise, there's a good chance that more science fiction films will be looking to the past for inspiration and settings. And as much as Prey is, is set in the past, what you mentioned before suggests it's sort of set with some very current mores. Oh, absolutely. It's what you would call perhaps a revisionist Western, where instead of looking at the cowboys, you look at the native indigenous peoples. Naru is a resourceful heroine of her people and representative of female empowerment, as well as a stirring portrait of a woman of color. I'm trying to protect you. Protect me from what? That's as far from Arnold Schwarzenegger's 1980s European white persona as you can get. Also, Prey is interesting because it features First Nation and Native Americans both in starring roles and behind the camera. There is a full Comanche version of the film available. Maui, Nita which is a real step in the right direction because the languages of indigenous people have not necessarily been an option for films. It took a full 10 years before Star Wars, for instance, was dubbed into Comanche. So if Prey proved successful, then would you expect we're going to see more of this kind of thing? It could be the case, and I would certainly look forward to some exciting prospects of looking at the past through a revisionist lens and shaking up our preconceptions of what happened in history. However, Hollywood has a terrible record of learning the wrong lessons from its successes, and there have been a stream of films set in the past with science fiction elements, such as The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. They'll be the world's last hope. And Wild Wild West. Before there was a secret service. Which were very big budget failures. And so there are also those misses when we've taken the future into the past. Someone once said that the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. But for science fiction, the past can be a completely foreign planet and we can see things much differently through that lens. John, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. Always a pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. Drop us a line at podcasts at economist.com or leave us a rating wherever you listen. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, 
award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.